We're coming to the end of 2016, and I wanted to make an end-of-year pitch for support for the SRB podcast. Since February 2015, I've conducted over 58 interviews on topics as wide-ranging as Putinism, post-war Kiev, Belarusian nationalism, Stalinist terror, Russian punk rock, Russian porn, Soviet gypsies, and many, many more. The topics have been an eclectic mix to give as complex a picture of Eurasian history, society, and culture as I can. I've interviewed some incredibly knowledgeable people who've generously given their time to offer us all interesting and thoughtful discussions. I think it's safe to say there isn't a podcast on the region like it. Though the podcast is free to listeners, it's not free to make. The SRB podcast is a one-person operation. Each episode from start to finish takes about 15 hours to produce. Reading on average a book a week is like being back in grad school. Editing out all the ums, kind ofs, you knows, and writes can take up to five to six hours alone. Then there are hosting and equipment costs. So if you like what you hear and find the discussions valuable, especially at a time where thoughtful discourse about the region is so scarce, please consider becoming a monthly patron or making a one-time donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Now on with the show. Кто вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели, и при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, history, and culture. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. I know nothing about Soviet television. Nothing. So, as a big fan of the game show genius of Chuck Barris, imagine how surprised I was to learn that the Soviet Union had game shows too. They were nothing like the gong show, of course. So I invited Christine Evans to the podcast to talk about the era of television in the Soviet Union from the 1950s to the 1970s, its purpose, audience, and programming. Also, if you're interested in seeing some Soviet TV, Christine was kind enough to provide some examples from YouTube. You can watch them at seansrussiablog.org. Christine Evans is an assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her research interests include modern Eurasian mass culture and communications and play, leisure, and consumption. She's the author of Between Truth and Time, A History of Soviet Central Television, published by Yale University Press. Here's Christine Evans. Your book, Between Truth and Time, A History of Soviet Central Television, examines the era of television in the Soviet Union from the late 1950s to roughly the late 70s, but you also deal with after that as well. I thought we'd begin by having you briefly lay out the history of television in those years and what potential Soviet pioneers of television, critics, and officials saw in it. Right. So television technology was developed on a on experimental basis in the Soviet Union at basically the same time as everywhere else where it was developed in the late 1930s. But as with the rest of Europe, the ex- actual expansion of the network and the manufacturing of sets is really delayed by the war. So you get this situation where television comes as a new medium in the Soviet Union and much of the rest of Europe in the 1950s, where it becomes really powerfully associated with post-war hopes for a transformation of political culture. And then in the Soviet context, the timing is such that it's really after Stalin's death that it becomes 
a mass medium. And so you have this new medium arriving at the height of the thaw and the sort of new hopes for Soviet political culture and really reinvigorating the Russian revolution essentially after Stalin's death and that television is going to help accomplish this. It's also an extremely optimistic moment where the, this is the moment of the triumph in the space race with Sputnik and Gagarin and the sense that technology is going to enable regular Soviet citizens after Stalin's death to, for the first time, really experience and penetrate into the truly revolutionary nature of Soviet reality. And of course, not everyone feels this way, but some of the more influential critics who are also originally had been theatrical critics, very versed in the history of the Soviet avant-garde, bring back these kinds of um, millenarian almost expectations about what this new medium can accomplish in the late 50s, early 60s. And so even people who don't fully want to implement that vision for practical reasons. Maybe they actually work on television, they know how stressful live recording can be and the real consequences if you slip up on air when you're broadcasting live. At the same time, the, these ideas have been really influential in the long term as a set of ideals, right? As an ideal case of how television could be or ought to be. And it's not terribly different in certain ways. Of course, it's profoundly shaped by the Soviet context, but it's not terribly different than hopes about television 10 years earlier in the United States, where because of the lack of economic impact of the war in terms of constructing infrastructure, either television becomes a mass medium much earlier, or at least a decade earlier. So many of these ideas that television will make everything transparent will finally, the end of corruption in politics are also circulating in Europe and the United States. So they're not that different, but they take on this new significance in the context of the thaw. Was the idea also to, the reason why I asked this is because some people think of this television today as bringing, in Russia, as a way to bring the nation together, like to keep the nation conscious of itself and bring people together. Was it also part of a pro that kind of project or was it envisioned as that? It was, but I think some parts of that have really come into, become actually much stronger really after the thaw. But it's there from the beginning as this idea, and it's actually directly referring to things like, you know, mass theatrical performances in, in the immediate post-revolutionary years in 1918, 1919 where the idea is you're going to have a simultaneous happening that's going to unify people across distance. They're going to all participate. So the sort of participatory nature of the medium is really stressed from the beginning, kind of surprisingly, because, of course, Western Marxist criticism of mass culture for quite a while insisted that television was pacifying, right? But from the beginning, they're imagining it as something that's participatory, really in ways that, as a couple of other scholars have found, too, anticipate the idea of social media, right? That, that media should be interactive and viewer-generated. So that's all there from the beginning. But I think the kind of emphasis on values and things that we see really becomes much stronger in the post-thaw period. So after 1964, and especially after 1968, you get this emphasis on, you know, what else can unify us beyond Marxism-Leninism and faith in a transformed future? And that's when the war cult, for example, is getting going. And the idea that what unifies us is shared patriotism, shared belief in the sacrifice of the war, shared participation in that. And this sort of idea of patriotic values that's so prominent for Putin really becomes much more prominent in a search for other alternatives to a more millenarian understanding of national unification. Now, I, I was surprised to learn, because of course, I know nothing about Soviet television, that it starts reaching a mass audience by the 1960s. I think it was 4 million people had televisions, or there were 4 million televisions? Yeah, that's right. That's the number of sets. So you can imagine with group viewing that it's an even larger audience of people coming over to other people's houses to watch and that kind of thing. 
And so television producers in the 1960s are, are becoming very aware of this audience more and more, and they're starting to devote a lot of effort into understanding the television audience. So what did they learn about Soviet viewers' tastes and interests? So they're, of course, interested in their audience from the very beginning, but in the early years, it's conceived quite locally. So Central Television is based in Moscow before 1967, right? It's beginning to expand its network throughout the, the late 50s, the early 60s. You know, at that point, when it's really a regional urban station, sometimes they get feedback from telephone calls to the studio, right? It's extremely intimate. And the audience is urban and educated primarily. But so in the second half of the 60s, at the same moment when kind of optimism is fading about how easily television can instantaneously accomplish its goals, and they're increasingly nervous about competition with foreign radio, Central Television is also expanding its audience dramatically, and it becomes very interested in doing actual sociological research as opposed to continuing traditions of letter gathering and analysis and moving into actually surveys of their viewers. So, of course, it's, these surveys are flawed and imperfect, but so is a lot of Western audience research. You know, it is a kind of authentic effort to use these new tools to understand what the audience wants. And what they find is that coarse audiences, as they've actually been saying in letters as well, um, are very interested in entertainment. They want, they want movies. They're not even sure that central television should have news because perhaps television's visual strength, or, you know, real strength as a visual me medium is to show entertainment programming, right? So, but they have, they have a real task on their hands as they prepare for the arrival of satellite broadcasting and becoming a truly national channel where they have to develop a schedule that addresses this all-union audience and that is, includes much more of a rural viewership. And that's very expensive, right? They're investing a lot in this television network and it doesn't make sense basically to only show unpopular things if you're going to spend all this money developing the medium, because of course, people can turn their sets off. And so there's a real desire to reach audiences that's implicit in investing in this technology. So they designed the schedule, and they learn about audience tastes and also when viewers are watching, right? It's a basic research like that. When do people come home and start turning on their televisions? And they discover that there is essentially, of course, an equivalent of prime time in the Soviet Union. People are in office jobs. Of course, there's people working on the second shift, and they take those audiences very seriously, including students studying on the second shift as well. But the main audience is really there in the week weekday evenings and on weekends, and they basically make the decision based on this evidence and based on their desire to influence to go ahead and, and have mostly entertaining content in those prime time hours. And I realized this not just from looking at the schedules, but also from seeing the complaints of people who were working in the propaganda desk within Central Television, that none of their shows were getting on during prime time, and they were really mad. So they build these sort of two blocks of entertainment, and at the center is a new news program called Vremia or Time, that's supposed to be the healthful filling um, in the sandwich. And in fact, they start to refer to the strategy internally of layering entertain popular entertainment and news as the layer cake strategy. So put something beneficial in the middle of, of attractive entertainment programming. Well, why don't you give us a sense of, you know, I'm sitting in my head, I'm assuming prime time was similar to prime time here around like six to 10, right? Something like this. Right. In the evening. So, you know, let's say I'm, I'm turning on Soviet television after a days of work. And what, what kind of stuff would I find on television? Who, who, what type of audiences does it appeal to? Well, the question of which audience it appealed to was always sort of a problem because they were highly aware. This, the sociological moment in the late 60s is also a time when they're becoming aware that there are different audiences who are interested in different things. And this is one way they're trying to respond. They're not initially comfortable 
with the Western model of finding entertainment that has the broadest possible appeal to every social group. They have a sense that as socialist television, we, we probably shouldn't do that. Maybe there's something wrong with that, although ultimately they end up kind of going with that. <laughs> but there's this initial moment where they want to tailor it to different audiences with different interests and conceive of the Soviet audience as a cultured group with varied tastes. And so they develop a schedule where on Mondays you would turn on the television and you would get a concert. But on Tuesdays, it would be a film. And on Thursdays, there would be an opera. But in fact, this doesn't really work, you know, with, for example, television sports, which was very widely broadcast. So, you know, it was very different, difficult to coordinate the television schedule based on people's interests in that way. And in the end, they have gradually moved toward understanding that we need things that are that are broadly appealing. So that meant things like you come home, you know, when you first got home, depending on when you got in, you might, you might have a children's program first or something actually with the very, the sort of most political thing that was in even near prime time was this program called the Leninist University of Millions that, you know, could have been a metaphor for all of Soviet TV, except that it never got it right into proper prime time. It was aimed at a specialized audience of professional propagandists. But then once you'd maybe done your cooking or arrived home and fully settled in, there would be a concert or the first half of a movie or a play you know, the sort of public service broadcasting mission of European television is the most relevant comparison here, right? To think not of sitting down in the United States with its openly commercial television competing with other networks to attract viewers. But the educational mission of European public television is very similar. So often high cultural offerings, but also folk music and things that were more popular. Movies, absolutely. And then Vremia initially moved, its time moves around depending on the length of the play or the sports that were before <laughs> it came on. And finally, it gains that 9pm time that it continuously had. And then after that, something even more popular. So usually films, which were really the number one thing, and other more popular musical genre concerts were the most common post-news content with the idea that that the late evening was when the blocking of foreign radio broadcasts, the jamming that is, was most difficult to, or was most common to listen late at night. So the sort of late night broadcasting. Um, and by the 80s, that gets really explicit. They start coming up with programs that are actually in the early 70s, they design a program called In Your Kitchen at 11. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> sort of, that this show is going to be just as fresh and interesting as those conversations you have late at night with maybe the foreign radio broadcasts possibly on. You talk a lot about variety shows and competition shows as, as the type of shows that they developed. Did they develop any dramatic shows or sitcom shows? I'm trying to get a sense of, while on the one hand you're saying that it's more on this educative European model, I'm trying to get a sense of for American audiences what they would find on television in the 1960s and 70s, you know, or classic sitcoms and th things like this. Did, did they develop shows like that? So there's a real difference in the Soviet context between, yeah, serial films, of which of which there was an enormous amount, and beginning in the mid-late 60s, in part driven by, as Christian Rothay has shown, right, the inability to get feature films from the film studios. <laughs> so they begin producing their own miniseries, have ordering them from the film studios, and that becomes very, very widespread. Those with their finite length, right? They're not generally open-ended like soap opera in the United States, for example, or some of these really long-running sitcoms where it's unclear when it's going to end. They do have a clear beginning, dramatic arc and end. 
And I think that time setting was more acceptable for a variety of reasons in the Soviet context. But those were also very popular shows and they were also broadcast in a very intensive way, right? If we have high value television dramas like Mad Men that are on once a week, the Soviet Union would produce something comparably seen as high cultural and serious, but it would be on every single night and you really had to clear your schedule in order to watch it, um, which actually meant a more intensive demanding viewing in a certain way than, than the American equivalent. Sitcom is a very interesting question. I think there was one show that some people might insist is really a variety show. In fact, sitcom kind of comes out of variety, but it's it's set in a Polish bar. So it's a comedy variety show that I think has quite sitcom-like elements in some way. There was an ongoing plot. It's definitely comedic. There's a cast of characters that you meet every time called Kabachok Trinacy Stulia for 13 Chairs Bar. That's again set in Poland with this cast of negative humorous characters it's a little bit like the Soviet cheers in a certain way. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, these quirky people meet in this bar all the time and, and they perform these skits that are mostly about petty corruption and family relations and all these very intimate, funny, warm, recognizable themes from Soviet life. But they're all Polish and they call each other Pan and Pani, which kind of makes it safe, right? You can make fun of these characters because they're not quite Soviet people. They're somewhere else, <laughs> sort of removed abroad. But they're the most famous Soviet comedic actors and actresses. And that show runs for more than a decade. And I think it is, in some ways, the closest the Soviet, Soviet television came to a, to a sitcom. And, you know, it was also quite participatory with viewers writing in and providing some of the humor content themselves. It featured writers from the socialist bloc. So it was meant to be transnational as well. Um, but they did have some problems with open-ended formats and things that might be addicting as a, something that might not quite fit Soviet requirements. Well, let's talk about some of the genres. First, news broadcasts. It was, a, it was an incredibly important thing. As you said, they, they wanted to u- utilize news broadcasts. So what was a Soviet TV news broadcast like? So the most famous one, of course, is Vremio that's create that first airs in the beginning of 1968. And, and it's, it's important, although it, be, it becomes a stereotype of how boring Soviet news is, because the, the Vremio that we remember from seeing clips or for those who traveled to the Soviet Union or lived there by the mid-70s, it's a very staid kind of performance with one male and one female anchor in this dyad reading the news, alternating between the two anchors with a few big photos projected behind them on a blue screen. But it was actually created as a, it was meant to be a reform of television news that was meant to be not boring. And so it, the original television news was just called television news. It didn't have another name. And it was really just a repeat and imitation of radio news. You could see the newscaster, but beyond that, it wasn't that different. And so there's this strong sense, again, in the second half of the 60s, when they're less optimistic about the way Cold War competition is going, that, that news is being used really effectively in the West as a kind of propaganda tool, and that the Soviet Union is failing to do this. And yet, of course, the Soviet Union, with its, um, as they felt, right, dynamic, interesting, positive stories about its own reality, should be able to do this. And so they, you know, they have these meetings where they watch BBC news broadcasts and talk about, okay, what are the differences? Well, the news on the BBC is twice as fast. We have this culture of speaking clearly and eloquently, of reaching less literate viewers. We need to speak clearly and carefully for non-native speakers of Russian, right? And this that culture is a problem when you want to do really quick news and be dynamic and switch between topics really rapidly. And so they designed Vremia to actually address all these problems of slowness and boringness. And initially, it's like that, although the problem with with the history of television news in the Soviet Union is that they didn't save nearly as many of the recordings of it 
precisely because they're they're reusing film all the time. They have a shortage of, of high quality film stock. And so they reuse it. And news did not make the cut in terms of what was preserved going forward. So there's not a, a lot of recordings of these very earliest broadcasts of Ramia. But, you know, it was apparently from kind of journalistic coverage at the time, very dynamic in the sense of it changed topics rapidly. Some subjects didn't have any accompanying text. It was meant to be like a kaleidoscope or a panorama. These are words that they use to describe how visually stimulating it would be. But then, of course, their older provincial viewers write in and say, you know, I didn't understand anything, right? This doesn't make any sense. I don't know what was happening. You know, it's, it's disorienting. And it disrupted all the key hierarchies of, of Soviet culture, you know, different Different kinds of news were presented in order that some of the critics from within the Communist Party said were, were chaotic, right? It didn't provide a, a clear message about hierarchy at all. Um, and it didn't, it didn't provide that kind of clear sense of the meaning of Soviet life that w- it was hoped would be contained there. So in the end, you know, they try to produce this show that's both exciting and reassuring, and it turns out to be sort of impossible. So they have several theories of what will interest viewers. So on the one hand, the speed and dynamism, and on the other hand, there's increasing arguments from within central television and within loyal journalists that what we need are these um, inspiring portraits of regular people. And of course, you can't rush those. Those have to be long. And so that theory of what will interest viewers leads to much longer segments and ones that are feature a model person at length. And that really runs counter to the idea of speed and dynamism as something that's exciting. And what ends up happening to the great frustration of the people, of the journalists and, and television critics who are involved in these discussions is that the Soviet domestic news becomes much slower and less dynamic than the foreign news, where it's still okay to show things like strikes and conflict, right, unpredictability. And all of that is supposed to confirm Soviet messages about the nature of life under capitalism, right, that it's unpredictable and dangerous and insecure. And at the same time, it makes the news much more interesting to watch because you don't know what's going to happen. And it's quite quite surprising every night what horrible thing has happened in the capitalist world. And there's this contrast where the foreign news is capturing a lot of interest and the domestic news is not. And critics kind of write about this and ultimately don't reach a solution for the domestic news. They do, for foreign news, actually just expand it and add commentators and and make it richer and richer and more interesting and invest more resources in it as the 70s go on. And yet it never addresses the question of representing Soviet reality successfully. Yeah, I was going to ask about that in terms of how it represents Soviet reality and the fact that it is a a far slower delivery in both in terms of, of actual audio delivery, but the image delivery in this effort that you mentioned to try to represent, quote unquote, average Soviet people. So what kind of stories did they do? What did they show viewers about Soviet life? Well, it was a number of different kinds of things. I would say there's quite a bit of emphasis on hierarchy. I mean, this is, you know, Soviet television was really affected by how much censorship was happening from the top. So something like the news was watched by the Politburo, right? And so they call and intervene. And there's, it's very tightly controlled and regulated, even to the level of what kind of distance of camera shot you're treated to, depending on your rank within the Politburo or the Central Committee. So there's, it's highly controlled. And, and typical stories would include if there was any, if a Politburo member appeared in public at some event, right, they would be featured. And that had to come before, for example, the news about the harvest, which would all, was also a very <laughs> kind of planting and the harvest, the agricultural year. Much of Soviet television was driven by a desire to overcome the problem of low economic productivity. I mean, this is at least what they talk about internally all the time. The goal of inspiring people 
is, you know, certainly general forms of loyalty, but it's really about engaging them in production and making them more productive, getting them not to be drunk at work, essentially, and sort of, you know, how can we inspire people? So, you know, the sense that you have to cover the planting and the harvest is is really an essential part of the news, is meant to mobilize rural workers, show them that they're important from the perspective of the state. And yet, for an urban viewer, sitting at home, you know, this kind of stereotyped, and it's never bad news, essentially, under the new director of central television that arrived and state television and radio as a whole. So Gay Lapin bans the sort of investigative type reporting that became partly allowed on a local level in under the thaw. There's no more bad news, right? So it's all, or no more exposing of corruption at a local level. It's all good news, you know, successful planting of the seeds and harvesting of the grain. And so it's quite it, it does become quite formulaic, even if the, the message is meant to be a reassuring one that under socialism, you essentially know what's going to be on the news, you have security, you know, nothing unexpected is going to happen. And that's meant to be a positive message. But it, when it's juxtaposed every evening with the dynamism of even negative events in the West, it's, it's an unpleasant contrast that they didn't figure out how to resolve. Yeah, I can see how difficult it would be to make rain harvest dramatic. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> But another genre, though, and you've already mentioned this, is that, and that's by the late 1960s, they're also producing dramatic miniseries. And, and these are, and you, you have a lengthy discussion of perhaps the most important and popular miniseries, 17 Moments of Spring, and how it shows all of the ambiguities and life that's perhaps absent from Soviet domestic news, it, you find it within these dramatical series. So talk about the genre of the miniseries and the importance of 17 Moments of Spring. Yeah, I was really struck to find that when they write about the dramatic miniseries, they actually bring in all this same language from the debates about how to improve news and documentary. And they say that, you know, looking back on some of the early television enthusiasts, again, bringing up these ideas that documentary should be able to reveal the amazing transformation of Soviet reality, they say, well, you know, over the decades that have, that have passed, we've essentially learned that in many ways that's quite difficult. However, it is possible if we turn to fiction. And so there's a recognition that the tools of a, a fictional miniseries are more effective at conveying the same messages about Soviet reality. You have a lot more options when you're using professional actors than when you're trying to get actual peasants to appear vibrant and meaningful and full. I mean, they may be wonderful people, but actually appearing on television is a professional skill that not everyone has. And so they say, okay, we're going to move toward fiction as a way of conveying Soviet reality. And one perfect example of this is a film like 17 Moments of Springs. So this is actually from the, the critical reception of that miniseries, that it actually is quite news-like and it indeed, indeed does include documentary footage from the war period. So there's an intermixture of fact and fiction and moving back and forth between them. That's a big part of the, of the series. So miniseries were important and desired by central television as well as part of an international market in serial films. So you could, you could sell a 12 series miniseries to other countries and receive or trade it as part of Cold War cultural exchanges in order to receive content that you could broadcast to your viewers. And most importantly, from the Soviet perspective, to get Soviet cultural products into onto foreign screens, particularly expensive high profile ones like 17 Moments of Spring. So this, these miniseries accomplished a, a number of goals simultaneously. So they're, on the one hand, you can watch them entirely as entertainment, right? As a handsome actor, expensive foreign locations. There's so many reasons to watch them, even if you ignore the film's intentions and messages. 
so there are all these ways that the viewers could enjoy the film, and it was it was something that was entirely open to interpretation. So you could enjoy it as a, a strictly entertaining program with this again handsome lead actor, beautiful foreign sets, expensive costumes. Right, it's a costume drama in a, on a lot of levels. It's very enjoyable for people in all times and places. Actually, you know, it's it's fun to watch for anyone. It's famously set in Berlin, right late in the war when the outcome is already determined. But the hero is a Soviet spy, Maxim Isayev, who's embedded in the top Nazi leadership as Otto von Stirlitz, and he's trying to prevent a separate peace with the Western allies. So he's here's the Soviet spy in Nazi Germany. At the same time, it's a meditation on the real uncertainty in this period about whether the camera lens could actually penetrate interior. So it has all these purposes from the perspective of the producers. And I went and, and read the internal discussions before the miniseries was broadcast in the archive in the Artistic Council of the Gorky Studios movie studio, right? They have all these filmmakers and critics who get together and watch the movie before it's broadcast to make suggestions to the director for revision and edits. And as they talked about it, there's a clear meditation on whether or not the camera can really penetrate ex exteriors. Are we seeing what we're supposed to be seeing when we gaze at, at Stirlitz's face at length? So it seemed to me that the movie has at least two main goals. So one is to teach viewers to see and to engage them, participants in morally evaluating Nazi officials, something that really ought not to be that hard for Soviet citizens. Nazis are famously, the most obvious and, and famous feature of this movie is that the Nazis are, are famously more morally ambiguous and charming even. And their crimes as we see them in the film's actual actions. So there are these documentary inserts where you see photographs from the Holocaust and other physical ev evidence of their crimes. But in the movie itself, within the plot, most of their crimes are, are much more similar to the crimes of late Soviet officials, the so sort of petty corruption and things like that. And they wrote about this in the press afterwards, openly. So the film makes an argument about the, the ambiguity of, of power and the need to accept this moral ambiguity and the need, frankly, for secret police themselves, which Liozneva in these discussions at the Gorky studio says, which unfortunately we cannot live without. So Stirlitz is a new Soviet hero of sorts who's honest and honorable, but he's also completely obedient to his superiors in Moscow. Um, and what he does on screen often kind of looks like treason, since he's helping his Nazi bosses as well as undermining them from the inside. So the movie essentially asks us to trust those people and that these people in the corridors of power are, are people too. And this is one of the main viewer responses that was published in the press afterwards is Tom Ludi. Like even in the height of Nazi power, there were there were people there. So the, the film makes a, I argue, makes a kind of new deal with the public that's based on shared patriotism around the memory of World War II, a kind of shared sense of the righteousness actually of the occupation of Eastern Europe. There's this amazing scene at the end where, um, near the end where Stulitz is saving his stenographer for his illegal kind of radio broadcasting set who has a baby with a, who has a German father who's been killed. And then there's another baby that's also saved who's a, a there's a male Russian baby basically and a German female baby in the back of this car that Stielitz is driving to safety in Switzerland. And it's it's quite clear that from this pair of babies will spring a Soviet Eastern European friendship. <laughs> um, they, and there's long shots of these two babies bundled together in the backseat of the car to cement this understanding. Now, one thing I, I didn't know amongst many things I didn't know about Soviet television was that they were Soviet game shows, which are always a very interesting genre of television. T talk about the Soviet game show and how it evolved in the 1960s and 70s. So this was a big surprise to me too, because of course, in the US context, game shows are heavily commercial. They're, they're negatively linked to capitalism as a sort of low, bad genre. And then of course, the, the scandals too in the 1950s with quiz shows and cheating, right, have further delegitimized them. So imagine my surprise when I discovered, and it was one of my first experiences actually when I was researching the book, was walking into the library 
and working in the card catalog of the post-Stalin Soviet books that weren't even in the main stacks. They'd been truly delegitimized within the Lenin Library's hierarchy, and it was a separate room you had to go to. I find this whole sheath of, of card catalog cards that are that are about a show called Kavayan. And the problem is that at no point does it say that this is a television show or a game show. I'm just in the television book section, and I'm seeing Kavayan over and over. And the book titles are things like Kavayan, 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 <laughs> or what is Kavayan? <laughs> and none of them will reveal what this thing is. And then I asked the reading room, librarian and who is a lovely woman and she said oh my god I can't possibly explain it to you you know Kavayan you know I said what is Kavayan and she it took her a minute before she could sort of say oh it's a television game show it's a competition and I it took her a minute because it's a phenomenon so significant that that it was it took a minute to kind of fully wrap your mind around how to explain it to a foreigner so I was very surprised by this and indeed Soviet game shows we're actually, unlike in the in the Western context, and especially the United States, quite a high genre because they were often produced by the most ambitious television producers. They were seen as related to this kind of avant-garde theater tradition, um, another mass festival using television that would be spontaneous and unpredictable. There was a lot of hope that television game shows could be like soccer in the, the unknownness of the outcome, which was a real objective for early television producers. And they keep this reputation, even as after a few bad incidents, they have to make sure they have clear political messages in a certain way, by mostly by focusing on Soviet students. Again, this is what Kristen Rotha has found, that Kavayan becomes about male educated youth, and that helps deal with its ambiguity. But at the same time, it's precisely these high status subjects of the show that make it such a high status genre, and that allows this play to be so widely publicized. And essentially, in the 1960s, on Kavayan, the show becomes a sort of stage for everything that's potentially unfair or corrupt about Soviet life. And so there's this around the show and not mostly on the show itself. So there's a jury for Kavayan. What first struck me when I was watching recordings of it too, was that it's a competition and there's people are competing, but you can't keep track of what's happening. So unlike something like Jeopardy, where you can keep track of the score at all times, they're making jokes. It's a comedy competition, essentially, where there's, they're improvising in response to certain kinds of games or prompts, these two teams of student youth. You can't tell who's winning at all. And there's this jury that initially was on the stage and they would be interviewed, but very quickly moves up into a balcony off the stage and you can't hear them. They're not mic'd except at the beginning. So they're having some kind of judging that's happening, but you can't tell. And the viewer's opinion about who won on a contest of humor may easily vary from that of what the judge's opinion is. And then the scoring's all crazy. There's different points for different, different competitions. So basically, it's extraordinarily hard to tell who's winning and why. And this problem of fairness really outraged the viewers. And there's a huge conversation, not on the show itself, but in letters to the show, in books that the show's producers published in response to these letters, and also because Soviet game shows were widely produced outside of television. So this was a very common thing a little bit like amateur Jeopardy, but if that if if you played Jeopardy at your school assemblies all the time, right? That's an amateur production for even factories would have evenings where they'd put on these shows off of the air. So they, they write books for the organizers of these amateur productions, where they discuss these issues of fairness and rules and respond to readers' complaints about this. And the show kind of staggers through 1968-69. It's becoming increasingly difficult, the producers argue, to discipline the players and keep them from saying inappropriate things on air. There's a number of problems. When Lappin arrives in April 1970, he quickly dislikes, he's a sort of legendary anti-Semite, and he's not pleased about how successful, particularly Jewish players from Odessa, the Odessan team is very popular. 
um, and very talented, right? He doesn't like the prominence of Jews on this on the screen on this show. So there's a number of reasons why it's eventually canceled in 1972. Although I found in the archives, the most proximate reason is that the host, Alexander Maslyakov, was caught up in a petty corruption scandal for putting on these amateur productions for, for cash under the table, basically. <laughs> um, so it gets canceled for a variety of reasons. But the show is enormously influential. And this debate about how to make decisions about winners and losers gets imported into a number of other shows across genres in the 70s. So the, all those conversations that are happening really off the air in the 60s become the subject of the shows themselves in the 70s when audience voting becomes a major part of the show. So they have people in the audience write in and vote for winners. This also comes on, you know, many of the same people who make game shows also make musical shows a lot of movement between those two programming desks, and they implement a lot of this audience voting type stuff too to kind of displace the jury. It's easy to dismiss this stuff. Oh, it's just a bunch of entertainment. Who cares? But, you know, the people who, the producers who wrote the books responding to viewer letters openly compared the Kavian jury to, to the Politburo itself as a kind of group of, of specially trusted people who can reach a consensus right? and who's among whom there'll always be a leader, right? They give guidelines for how to form a jury and how to work the jury. And it sounds like an idealized, improved version of collective leadership by party officials. And so when you dethrone that jury, there is a political frisson to that, even though it doesn't have to be acknowledged and therefore you can talk about it openly. So this, on the 70s, all of this breaks open and you see audience voting and not only that, but the discussion of audience voting. What does it mean? Why are you voting for a particular person? What criteria should we use? This kind of procedural democratic play that gets quite extensive in the first half of the 70s, especially, but ongoing throughout the 70s. So there's there's quite a bit of this that that just spills out, and Kavian is an extremely influential show that's that's now back on the air since 1986 and still on Russian television today. And what do contestants or the teams win? Being familiar with American game shows is right, it's money or prizes or something like this. Like so, what did what do you get if you win? Well, this was a big topic of of debate. So the the Kavian teams they didn't win much. There were some. The corruption scandals around them were all about off-air rewards, that the, the good teams were receiving money from local factories, from local political leaders in order to hire professional writers. So, so the money was involved and it was corrupt, but it wasn't so much about prizes. But my favorite Soviet game show by far is another one that's still on the air and has been continuously since 1977 or 75, arguably, which is called What, Where, When. And that show, they addressed the, the question of prizes more openly. And they had, from the beginning, they had books. So there, you could win rare, beautiful editions of books published in the Soviet Union. Of course, it sounds like a sort of joke about a Soviet game show where you win books. But at the same time, they were nice books. And they were the camera treated them like they were very valuable prizes. So even though the prizes themselves were explicitly anti-capitalist in a certain way, they were given these long close-ups, right, and sort of full glamour treatment from the camera and the, the on-camera personnel. So that it, when they did, of course, Perestroika arrives and they start to introduce other prizes, real prizes. And so by the, the mid-late 80s, the game goes to Bulgaria and there's real things like sets of perfume and watches and other more valuable prizes. And then finally, the 90s roll around. And of course, there's giant stacks of cash on the table and the winners get these diamond owl statues and things like that. So, <laughs> But they were sort of preparing the ground for that with these very glamorous treatments of the book prizes. Now, your book fits into a growing body of scholarship that's looking at the 1960s, late 60s and the 1970s, and examining the so-called stagnation years of the Soviet Union. 
How has this period been traditionally understood, and how does the history of Soviet central television allow us to think about it differently? So stagnation was, of course, Mikhail Gorbachev's own coinage and was, for obvious reasons, beneficial to him politically as he framed the difference between himself and the couple of Soviet general secretaries who'd preceded him. And it was also quite useful in various ways for the memory of the sort of liberal intelligentsia of the 1960s who did experience the 1970s as a period of much greater repression, which is quite accurate from their perspective, I think it also immediately became a kind of useful straw man. And quite a few scholars who work on this period now have started to actually go back to all the political science, in particular, and economic work that was produced in the 70s, that of course demonstrates that in any period of time, right, all kinds of interesting things are happening. But it it makes it kind of awfully easy straw man when you're writing a a book or dissertation, because of course, stuff happened, and it's, it's an awfully easy point. It's quite quite easy to think, well, we should just throw it entirely out, right? It's, this is obviously framed by these particular concerns at the time that we now see are not entirely useful. But I think there's something useful about stagnation in the sense that essentially this is a, a moment that connects us to the Soviet 1970s to a much broader transnational or global phenomenon. The 1970s were the era of stagflation in the West as well. Its terms are similar for a reason. There's a global post-1960s crisis about the political role of the working class after the 60s. And so television really fits into that. It helps us see that connection, broader transformations in political life across the socialist capitalist divide. I think on the most basic level, and especially for non-specialists, right, television really shows us and Soviet popular culture was not entirely boring, right? That it was fun and dynamic and interesting. That this divide that structured a lot of Western literature about this period between official and unofficial is really a false divide. These television producers, they're not completely accepted, I would say, by the keepers of intelligentsia memory in the former Soviet Union. I've heard people refer to them as televisionshiki, so sort of a dismissive word for these people who work in television as people who made the wrong choices politically at the time. But at the same time, they're absolutely in dialogue, moving across the boundaries between, for example, semi-banned or very limited circulation plays and movies and television shows. So the, the director of Shtug de Kagada was, before he moved to television, was a director at the Taganka Theater, right? So that's a person who personally crossed that line many times and tried to bring some of those high cultural values into television. So alongside a broader conversation in television studies that these low, ostensibly low cultural genres are at the center of cultural and political life, are significant, are worth studying. Um, within the Soviet context, those um, that high cultural bias is even stronger in the 70s. And I think looking at television helps us see how that's not a useful perspective. It's important to know about these things, not only because they were popular, but also because they were interesting in themselves. And finally, what what are the legacies of of the Soviet Union's era of television on Russian TV more broadly? I mean, not just during perestroika, but also, and you've touched on this a bit with, with the transformation of the game shows, but how does this beginning history of Soviet television feed into how we can understand and look at Russian television today? I think it's an, it's really important. One way, I think stagnation has always been framed, actually, to continue the previous question, as an ending, the end, the beginning of the end, the reasons for the final crisis and, and collapse of the Soviet system. And I think it's also important to reframe it, and television really helps us do this very in very obvious ways as a beginning as well. <laughs> this is the, the origins of a new deal between the state and the public, based on shared patriotism, the war memory, and things like that. And also, really, with the kind of sense that so many of these television shows could cross the 1991 divide with absolutely no problem. An evening news program, a game show, a 
a holiday variety program. All of those genres not only could cross 1991, but did because they never had much to do with Marxism, Leninism in the first place. So much of this late, this kind of 1970s culture is really after belief in the imminent arrival of communism. And therefore, it's completely relevant and useful. It's a really useful past for contemporary Russian television and other post-Soviet televisions. And there's quite a bit of personnel continuity. I mean, I was really surprised to find and learned from some of my interview subjects that they themselves had been mentored by famous directors from the early 70s and late 70s. They themselves arrived at television in the late 70s and then became the leaders of, of innovative news programming and other things that are very famous from perestroika era television in the late 80s. And But they see them as themselves as students of these game show directors, even though we associate them with news, really. There's a lot of movement between those couple of formats. So that in particular really looks like a news discussion program. And it's not only the prizes that change when you get to the to the late 80s, but the, the questions themselves. And they start debating perestroika reform policies because it was already a, a lively roundtable debate. It just happened to earlier be about trivia. and But it was very easy to change the topic. <laughs> the format was already there. So this this kind of continuity, there's a lot of personnel continuity. Konstantin Ernst was someone who, who helped produce the most famous news program during Perestroika. Konstantin Ernst is the, the head of Channel One in the present. So there's, there's quite a bit of continuity, both in people themselves whose careers have spanned this divide, and also in these kind of mentorship relationships that have gone on. So it's not surprising that, that so much of this television content that was designed to deal with the dilemmas of a state that doesn't have a clear national idea, as, as Russia is constantly announcing and struggling to develop a national idea, when Marxism-Leninism is already in decline, that's kind of already the case. They're looking for new ways to unify society, justify the rule by one party, with some elements of procedural democracy, but maybe not actually the full unpredictability of procedural democracy. These dilemmas are, are have remained constant, although the 90s are, in fact, look more like an exception relative to the connections between the Brezhnev era and the 2000s under Putin. So there's there's quite a few reasons why it's important to look at Soviet television as an important precedent for television now, even as it's become, of course, very different, far more choices, much more driven by market concerns and things like that. Some of these formats are especially linked to a fondness for the Soviet past, and they're flexible formats that can be used in different ways, including in a, in a new political system under Putin. That was Christine Evans, Assistant Professor of Modern Eurasian History at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. She's the author of Between Truth and Time, A History of Soviet Central Television, published by Yale University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.
Archie Bunker, and we'll watch emergency. 